Shakespeare was a writer with a well-honed sense of what human beings do. That's why in his plays we find passion, we find hate, we find victory, we find love, and, more than you'd probably recognized, we find food. From the Fulcher Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Fulcher's director. John Tufts is an actor, an actor who mostly does Shakespeare. And like a lot of actors, when he's not on stage talking, he's thinking about the play he's appearing in, what it means, how it moves people, how it works. In John's case, all that thinking led to an unusual place because what he was thinking about was food. All the times food is mentioned, all the times it's eaten, all the times it's alluded to in Shakespeare. And then, in turn, that thinking led him someplace else unusual. John decided to research all those food references and turn them into a cookbook. Fat Rascals Dining at Shakespeare's Table. John's book doesn't pull out every food referenced in Shakespeare, but he pulls out most of them. And then, in the cases where he can, he gives you the recipe so you can make it. Now, there are two ways to talk about a cookbook on a podcast. You can just sit down and talk about it, or you can talk about it while you're actually cooking. We decided to go with option number two. Given the times we're living in, we needed to maintain social distance, of course. So we cranked up our Zoom, we broke out our smartphone microphone apps and handed them to spouses, and we placed everybody about as far away as they could get from each other within the continental United States. John Tufts is in his kitchen in New York. Our host, Barbara Bogave, is in her kitchen in Los Angeles. So that's what we cooked up and here's how it came out, a podcast we're calling Make Two Pasties. John, it's so great to uh, have you here. And uh, you know what? I'm going to start cutting up my bacon because I'm just realizing okay. what a ton of bacon is going into this pasty we're making. Yeah, uh, two pounds of bacon is nothing to shy away from. Uh, or maybe it is a quite a bit to shy away from, but I, 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 <laughs> I, I haven't read this recipe, honestly, since probably like the book was finally published and then and then when you said you wanted to bake it I was like yeah sure and then I looked at it and went oh my god I forgot <laughs> two pounds of bacon <laughs> I know no it's really it's really hitting me I mean it's two full packages and I realized that it's only 12 ounces per package so I got an extra oh, one it's okay oh my gosh vegetarians just trigger warning right now you, you might you might not be able to stay with us um, anyway, so I'm going to start chopping. But, be, you know, while we do that, I did wonder what made you think of writing a Shakespeare cookbook? Well, it certainly wasn't like, what would people love to eat? Oh, I have an idea. It was <laughs> more just like, I, you know, I was doing this production of Henry IV, Part One, and we were in the beautiful outdoor Elizabethan theater at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And we're in this scene that's called the East Cheap scene. And uh, at one point, Prince Hal and Falstaff are kind of hurling insults at each other. And Prince Hal refers to Falstaff as a roasted manning tree ox with the pudding in his belly. And I would say this, it's a brilliant line, isn't it? It's just like, it's so evocative. And I, I would say this line every night and I would think to myself, 
you know, it's meant to be gross. It's meant to be really evoke something just disgusting and fat. Just it's like a 400 year old fat joke. And I would say this line every night and go, that that does not sound disgusting. That actually sounds kind of delicious. I want to learn. I want to learn. Is this the kind of actor you are that you're thinking these things while you're yeah, yeah. <laughs> while you're on stage? Well, other actors are thinking what they're going to have for dinner, and I'm thinking about what I want to put in a cookbook for someone else to have for dinner. Um, I wonder what could be other. What are other food references in Shakespeare that might be interesting for an audience? Okay, so you would hear that every night on stage and think, ooh, that sounds pretty good. It sounds like a lot of just lard, which is kind of what this pasty <laughs> recipe is. Yeah, this pasty is quite a bit. Well, you know, like the Elizabethans spent so much of the year with restricted eating because of the church. And the church said, well, on these days you can't eat meat, you can't have dairy, that kind of thing. And it was more than just like Fish Friday. So you get the sense that the rest of the year when they were allowed to eat meat, they just sort of went to town and <laughs> ate whatever they could possibly find. Oh, that um, makes sense. They really hove too. But yeah, I, I would listen to that line in, in Henry 4.1 and think that's something I, I want to learn to make. And, and in truth, it sounds, I mean, to me, it, I, I would stand by it. It sounds delicious. This roast ox, like over a spit, cooked on a spit over an open flame and then filled with like sausage and things like that. I mean, you know, you don't want to have it every night, but it sounds pretty good. No, it's cool. It's kind night. of like a turducken. Yes. And now right. I'm putting more meat in my meat. I'm, I'm putting some uh, pork yes. mince, as they say, into the um, into my bacon. <laughs> right. That's sort of what it is. It's like ground pork into your bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, wow, you know, I'm, I'm imagining my hands covered with whatever you'd be covered with in Shakespeare's times. No soap. Right. Oh, and, yeah. and what's interesting, too, is this recipe in the book is significantly scaled down. The, the recipe that I took this from is from a, a cookbook that's after Shakespeare's death. It was written in about 1660 uh, by a man named Robert May. And Robert May was a, a cook during the reign of Charles II. And he published this brilliant book called The Accomplished Cook. And in it, he has just hundreds of recipes. And one of them, or several of them are for uh, different pasties. The pork pasty that's featured in The Accomplished Cook is intended for a wedding feast and comes out of the oven looking like a pig's head, basically, the way the pastry has been shaped and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it is enormous. And that would have been served for a wedding feast. As I was looking at that going, oh, I'd love to adapt that for this book. I realized I, I, I didn't want to tell people to go out and buy eight pounds of pork and you know, <laughs> four packages of bacon and have, you know, like a, a half pound of ginger thrown in there. I think people would, would, would shy away from it. And, you know, we should say we, that we're, we're we wanted to do a pork pasty because of Titus Andronicus, right? Titus oh, yeah. bakes Chiron and Demetrius into a pie, and he serves them to their mother. And as I said, your recipe calls for two pounds of diced bacon, and I just added two pounds of uh, lean ground pork to that. Right. So yeah. So I guess the bacon. We I don't know who the bacon would be. I guess exactly. the bacon would be Chiron, and the pork would be Demetrius. In that and case, they're equal? I, don't, I don't know. Two pounds of Chiron <laughs> yeah. and two pounds of Demetrius, or was one of them bigger? <laughs> I mean, they're sort of equally awful as characters. The threat that Titus issues to Chiron and Demetrius is just brilliant writing too. I will grind your bones to dust, and with your blood and it, I'll make a paste, and of the paste, a coffin I will rear, and make two pasties of your shameful heads. 
And, um, and I thought when I was looking for various food references and came across that one, I thought, oh, this is, this is going in the book, no doubt. <laughs> and, you know, um, that brings me back to a question I wanted to ask you, which is that, you know, you're not a scholar, but you've done a lot of scholarly work for this. So what, what did you think in the beginning? Was it, was it like you thought it would be fun to cook all these foods that appear in the plays? Or were, was it more for you like uh, Julie and Julia, the movie? You know, like you would learn. <laughs> I, I suppose it was a little bit more like Julie and Julia. Um, I'm going to make my way through this text uh, and I'm passionate about it. Um, mm. But no, I'm not a scholar by any stretch of anyone's imagination. But I do think that actors are hungry researchers uh, when we approach plays. And with Shakespeare, you know, we're, we're not just reading the play, we're combing the text for the irregularities in the meter of the verse. And we're looking up these brilliant words that nobody uses anymore. And we are kind of mining the text for any clues to tell us what's going on and who these characters are. And as we do that, in many ways, we're, we are performing the role of, of a researcher. And, and we're doing many things that researchers do. Well, we are also doing many things here. I just added four <laughs> tablespoons of sage, and now yes. I'm going to get to the ginger. This is a ton. I've never done four, you know, added four tablespoons of sage to anything, not even stuffing. But this is uh, two teaspoons now of ground ginger, which is yes, sounds very uh, Elizabethan. Right, um, and it's also the ginger. I think is great because the heat of that ginger is going to kind of take you out of all of the, the, the enormous amount of fat that you're dealing with. Yeah. It's going to kind of say, you know what? We're going to help your stomach a little bit with this ginger. Uh, yeah, it's like a prophylactic amount of ginger. <laughs> um, I mean, we need some salt here, I know. A whole tablespoon of salt. And, oh, two tablespoons of white wine vinegar. Mm -hmm. Again, the white wine vinegar is going to help. That acid is going to help a little bit. And so the salt, I was going to say, is um, negotiable because depending on what kind of bacon you're using, obviously the Elizabethans would not have used a smoked bacon like most Americans are going to be using. And so, and our smoked bacon is significantly saltier than basically a, a roast pork belly, which is what the Elizabethans would have used. I'm cracking my eggs now and putting my wine vinegar along in the eggs. This amount of meat, only someone with a lot of wealth, a very wealthy person in, in Shakespeare's time would be able to make this, right? Oh, yes. I think that what I tried to include in the book was a, a, a spectrum of recipes based on what people would have been able to afford. You know, we've been talking on and on about pasties, and we've never defined what it is. For people who don't, you know, here we are in America, what is a pasty? What makes it a pasty? Well, a pasty is going to be any pastry that's filled with really anything, but most of the time we associate it with, go with, with meat. Um, and in a contemporary pasty, like a Cornish pasty you would get today, it's going to be pastry that encases a cooked meat. It's very different than a Shakespearean pasty where the meat goes into the pastry uncooked and then it and the pastry are cooked together. So essentially it's just meat baked in pastry. Excellent. And now I'm adding my eggs mixed with white wine vinegar. So the eggs in this case are much like in a pate, the eggs are going to kind of bind it as it cooks to keep it from uh, separating too much. Um, 
Yeah, so Meat, that's, meatball. That's really the, yeah, right. meatball, exactly. Uh, so you have a lot of great quotes about meat while we're in this meat phase. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So one of my favorite quotes is from Henry IV, Part II. Uh, in Henry IV, Part II, there's this character, Justice Shallow, and Justice Shallow... Uh, places in order. Uh, um, he says, some pigeons, Davy, uh, a couple of short-legged hens, a roast joint of mutton, and some pretty tiny little kickshaws, tell William Cook. And I love that line so much because, one, it gives us a, a very authentic and of-the-era menu. It's a menu that people would not eat now. Most Americans have no idea what a kickshaw is. And I can count on one finger the number of times I've eaten pigeon. So it, it's, it's really evocative of a time. And then it also tells us so much about this wonderful character. I love that quote because we get a real sense of who Shallow is based on how particular he is with his order. Let me think. Oh, uh, Falstaff at one point refers to his troops as bacons, which I love. He calls them <laughs> as, they're, as they're setting off into battle to fight Why? Because uh, they're in long, Hotspur's troops. Because they're, they're arranged in marching order, like long strips of bacon or, or their meat? They're just oh, meat Oh, I think it's war? just because what? they're... I, yeah, I think... Easily disposable food. Hmm. Um, and, and so it, it, as they're setting off to battle, he says, on, bacon's on. Uh, and, and you can imagine the level of morale that those troops would have after they've been referred <laughs> to as cannon fodder. doesn't exactly make me yeah, feel good about yeah, it's there's a, there's a big difference sacrifice. between on, bacon's on, and once more into the breach, dear friends. You know? <laughs> yeah, vast amount of... Okay, what you're hearing is me trying to get mix my butter... It's just a frightening amount of fat. I don't even know why I'm adding more fat to the to to this bucket of fat. But anyway, butter goes into this <laughs> mixture. Four tablespoons. Yeah, actually, I to be totally honest, you know, I don't entirely know I, why the butter would be added in in this case. However, um, I wanted to keep these recipes as authentic to what I had chosen from the book or no, from the various that. resources. And so I, I was like, well, I could remove this butter. But I thought, well, let's keep it in so that people can actually get a taste of what this would have been like as close as possible. No, I, I definitely But that also might that. explain life expectancy for Elizabethans versus today. So. <laughs> well, I hope we're not recreating that for anyone who does yeah. this. Who, um, I didn't realize until I took a look at some of the recipes for the pastry that the meat pies in Shakespeare's time was all about the meat, right? In fact, as you point out in the book, the pastry in some cases was is just like a, a traveling container for the meat. You wouldn't even eat it. Yeah, the short, what we call the cold butter short crust, like we have now with, a, with an apple pie, um, th those types of pastries weren't introduced until much later. The, the, this era was the beginning of the introduction of the cold butter short crust. So that means that prior to this time, many of the crusts that were used, they were purely used for insulation and then also to provide a kind of beautiful presentation when something was brought out to the table. And this era is the introduction of those things where like you get a, a, an edible crust. Okay, and ours is meant to be, meant to be eaten. And now I'm finished. Oh, absolutely. I'm finished my meat anyway, my, my meat filling. Great. And I assume you are well too. Well done. I am, yes. <laughs> and now I'm going to put this in the refrigerator, right, while we make our crust. 
Okay, let me get all my ingredients here. I need some flour. I need to get all the sage out of the way. I have my scale out. And I'm measuring my butter, and now I'm going to cut it up. And yes, and as you cut up the butter, and now you're a baker, so I, I, I feel like I might be just preaching to the choir, but I generally like you know using larger slices because then that, that allows for it to be a little flakier in the, in the long run. Yes, the schmear. The schmear, the hand. I like the right. heel of the hand schmear. And while I'm doing this, you know, we're talking about... Shakespearean cooking because this is a Shakespeare cookbook. But what eras of English cooking are you really drawing from and writing about here? Well, I'm I, the era that I call Shakespearean cuisine. And again, like I'm coining a term not as a scholar. I'm coining it just for research purposes. It's what what I call Shakespearean cuisine really begins with the court of Henry VIII, so around 1508 to around 1660 or so. Now, those are two time periods that predate and outlive Shakespeare. But I, I wanted to have things that, just like we eat food that was popular in the 1950s, um, and that our food is going to evolve a little bit over the next 50 or so years, I feel like having those two times before and after Shakespeare is not harmful. It's still going to be very much what Shakespeare would have eaten. And then I'm calling sort of the era Shakespearean because he's the single most important figure to come out of that era. And, uh, and so that's why I sort of name it that. But yeah, the cuisine begins, for me, really begins around the, the court of Henry VIII. Now, why? Because the court of Henry VIII was the beginning of kind of introduction of French ingredients to the Elizabethan, or to the, not the Elizabethan, but the, but the English table. And Henry VIII's cooks had spent time in France and then come back and brought French things that they had learned. Um, in addition to that, this was also the beginning of a big international influence that the English had. They, they suddenly went from being this isolated island to dealing with Spain and Portugal and, and uh, northern European countries. And then we also see ingredients because of um, journeying across the Atlantic to North America. We see ingredients coming from South America and Peru up through Virginia and then to England, then after Charles II is when it starts to make another big shift. That is so interesting. And wasn't there also a fuel shortage at this this time? And that meant that ovens were changing as well and how the English cooked their cooked everything, cooked their meat? Yes. So there was a, a fuel shortage for timber. There was a timber shortage. And that meant that they had to kind of rethink how ovens were going to be uh, fueled. And so ovens were redesigned to accommodate coal. But coal has different oxygen requirements. And so the ovens had to be redesigned to accommodate the flow of oxygen for coal. So coal was placed on this vertical kind of gridiron and it would be packed into that and then the the meats that were roasted on a spit would be roasted directly in front of that gridiron that contained the coal so that meant that roasts were cooked via radiant heat as opposed to direct heat underneath all of the the meats and as a result kind of england gained this identity that it exists to this day of being um a kind of nation of roast meats oh that is amazing okay i'm measuring out my water that i'm going to mix with egg for the pastry it's 70 grams of water yes 
And I do take issue with you in this recipe. There's no salt in the crust. There is no salt in the crust. And um, what is that about? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, there, That's a deal breaker for me. <laughs> I, I have to say that I, I couldn't find anything that gave uh, an indication of like, w were they were they opposed to it? Like, what was the deal? I mean, salt would have been a very expensive, you know, ingredient for most people. But again, this oh, entire expensive. meal would have been expensive so I, I, I don't know um, you won't be lacking for it when it comes to the filling <laughs> but no that's for sure but in terms of in terms of uh, what salt can add to a dough in its stability and its ability to um, prevent gluten from developing yeah you definitely miss that um, okay so hold on a second okay you can tell you can tell I'm focusing on making good crust now <laughs> You don't want a heavy hand with your crust. I think that even back then, as a chef and a housewife, you got a very bad name if you had a heavy-handed crust. <laughs> Is that true? I, 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 I do. I mean, I do find <laughs> I imagine. that. Yeah, I would imagine as well. I, I, uh, one thing you, you might notice in this is that the the ratio of water to flour in this particular crust is much lower than it would be in a sort of modern pie crust where it would be like if you think of the modern three to one dough you would have 300 grams yeah. of flour to 100 grams of um water but here it's 450 grams it's of very flour dry. yeah it's very dry right um, but the egg adds a little bit of moisture and uh and and it, it's still fairly stable so it's not going to like crumble apart on you no that's true what is the shape for this huge um, festival pasty. Is it like a big moon or a half moon or an oval? What is it? I would say it's a circle with the uh, kind of a large disc about the size of a record or so with the, the base layer and then you're, you're going to put the pork on top of that base layer and then a, I guess you would say a larger circle um, for the top layer that will uh, fold over the pork. So it's going to be like a giant <laughs> mound just to remind you of how appetizing it is to eat a, a mound of pork. <laughs> I pictured it like Sweeney Todd, but this is much grander. Okay, I didn't figure into our conversation how much goop I'd have on my fingers. <laughs> um, but I have a nice disc here, and you, in your recipe, you want us to refrigerate this for an hour. And you say make a big... Yeah, I say sort of shape it into a, a flat disc. A disc. It just makes it easier for, for rolling out later uh, when it's time to uh, make the two parts. Okay, now, for the purposes of our conversation, yes. I actually made my crust earlier. So by the magic endowed in me by broadcasting, I'm now going to <laughs> go get my pre-chilled crust oh, so that we can make our pasty. And also, I think it's probably important to preheat an oven about now, right? Yeah, generally, I'd say. How did, how did people even know how hot their oven was? Oh, it's crazy. I think about the, the intuition that a baker might have had or must have needed in order to determine the appropriate uh, temperature for baking because things are exacting. I mean, you know, they're not making souffles at this point, but they're still... They, they, they still require some element of precision. If you're using a giant hearth oven, how on earth do you do that? What, what I had read in this brilliant book uh, kind of about this whole era's food history um, was that bakers would take a 
a stick and run it along the external surface of the, of the hearth oven. Um, and then depending on the quality of sparks that that stick made as it was dragged across the surface of the, of the hearth, would determine how hot the oven was. And you just got sort of really good at reading. Uh, it's sort of like divining almost. You got really good at reading the stick to determine how hot your oven was. Isn't it amazing to think how much knowledge people had just in their, kind of in their senses and their fingertips? I mean, and a recipe back then, well, there would be no recipe. It would just be mixed meat with spices, some sage. Exactly. And the, the, re Make a dough the recipes were not, qu no quantities were really given. Or if quantities were given, they were so, for our purposes, prohibitively enormous quantities. And it's not like today's cookbook culture where, you know, everybody has access to precision. I'm getting ready to roll out my disc of dough. Great. Okay. So this, this we roll out to about a quarter of an inch. Is yeah. the direction I'm just going to call this? And you can done. roll it. You can roll it a, a, a little thinner, even too. I, I would recommend, given how dry the dough is, you know, it doesn't have to be exact. And now, let's put it on a baking sheet with a lot of parchment paper because I imagine it's just going to release cups of grease. Oh yeah. <laughs> have you already done your second, your top crust? I have done my top crust. I have uh, uh, laid it over the top, and, and now I'm um, kind of figuring out how I want to artfully put something on top. Okay, that's good. That is good. I want to ask you an authenticity question. Okay. Because it always comes up in almost all of our conversations about Shakespeare, particularly in production. Just how authentic do you try to stay to Shakespeare? And how much did you think about that when you were writing a cookbook? I mean, authenticity, authenticity is a question that we come up against all the time when we're putting on a play and then certainly in the creation of, of this book. And authenticity is so tricky because it's something you want to honor. But you also have to ask yourself, like, how authentic are we trying to be? How far into the past do I actually want to go? Do I want to just give a taste of the past? Or do I want to try to, to, to almost like we're going to the past as much as we can? But it's tricky because sometimes authenticity can actually alienate rather than invite, rather than include. And the audience for a so-called very authentic production might be utterly lost. And that kind of authenticity might be, uh, it might be brilliant. It also uh, might at the very best be kind of like museum theater. But again, you know, it's a question that you have to come back to. You can't just say, no, I, I'm going to ignore authenticity. I, y y y we have to go back to it because a lot of that original meaning can influence uh, character choices and things like that. When it comes to the cookbook, it's a lot of that same question. I'm going, how authentic do I want to be? Much like with Shakespeare, what I sort of went back to was the words. For me, the words are the beginning and, and end of it all. As long as we are saying those words and conveying as much of a true and original meaning as we can with those words, then that's where we should at the very least begin. And so I'm going back to the words of these 400-year-old cookbooks. But I also don't want to be so authentic as to say the only way in which we can 
ever be successful with cooking Shakespearean food is if we're cooking it in a hearth oven. And by the way, when you come over to my house for dinner, you're not allowed to talk until I speak because I'm your social better. And also, uh, you, um, you can't use a fork. You have to do everything with a pointy knife and a spoon. It's like, I, I, think we can, I think we can make a few concessions here and there when it comes to dining customs and then also uh, preparation, some technique, things like that. But I wanted to keep the words, just like with Shakespeare, as true to the original text as I could. Yeah, at a certain point, it becomes fetishistic. <laughs> right. As opposed to fun, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah. I, you know, you, you say fetishistic, and I say sort of like pre- preventatively dorky. Like, I just go, what's the... <laughs> like, like, really, who's really interested in this? <laughs> so... Well, how, just a practical question, how exactly did you uh, look through or comb or, or search Shakespeare's texts looking for the food references that you quote? Well, I had originally thought, surely there's some sort of companion out there. There's got to be like an Oxford companion to food and Shakespeare or some kind of concordance. But I couldn't find anything. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to have to sort of do this manually. Each of us as an actor, as we work on Shakespeare, we carry with us the um, what, what's called the lexicon, the, the Shakespeare lexicon, the A to Z lexicon. And, and what it is, is, is a giant two-volume dictionary that has all of the words unique to Shakespeare or whose meanings are unique to Shakespeare. And, uh, and then it gives the meaning and then the plays in which those words appear. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll just open up the lexicon and I'll look up food. I'll just look up food and see what comes up. And then, of course, you get Twelfth Night right away with the music be the food of love, play on. And and then I, I looked through the lexicon for just other food words. And then it would bring up plays. And then often those plays would have a whole stream of things surrounding something. So, for example, you know, you look up pasty and you're going to get Titus Andronicus. And then you're also going to get something from Merry Wives of Windsor. And so you're you're including cross-referencing those things with the plays, but it was a very manual process, just sort of play by play, speech by speech. It was a a way to get really intimate with the plays in, in in a practice that I hadn't done before at all. What did you find that you didn't know and that you really loved? I mean, there were so, so many things that I just didn't... Kickshaws. I had always thought always. I, I would hear the actor playing Justice Shallow talk about kickshaws, and I... In my dim thinking, I thought a kickshaw was like a type of bird. I had no idea that it was basically a Shakespearean hors d'oeuvre. Remind us, when you say it was a Shakespearean hors d'oeuvre, what exactly was it? So kickshaws are uh, a kind of English bastardization of the French phrase quelque chose. Quelque chose meaning something uh, or some things. But what it is, is it means like little somethings. So they're little bites. And it can be anything. They can be sweet. They can be savory. They can be little pasties. They can be... So it's it's an amuse-bouche. It's kind of like an amuse-bouche, exactly. Well, thank you for telling that story because while you were doing that, I managed to fill the pie with a ton of meat well done i can't even fit it all in and now i'm crimping it as best i can do you make it look like a pie with little pie crimps um i mean it it certainly helps to use the tines of a fork to do that crimping because again it's going to be releasing so much moisture that the better seal you've got uh the happier your (laughs) your cleanup will be 
Okay, I'm putting this in the oven. I can sense with my the hair on the back of my neck that my oven was at exactly 350 degrees. Well, uh, you are a true Elizabethan <laughs> cook. You know, so of course we made, uh, I, I made one of these earlier because we don't have time to sit around and wait for this thing to cook, which is, it cooks forever. It cooks for what, two hours? Two hours. I mean, it, it, you, you're, since you're dealing with raw meat, you might as well be extra, extra sure. <laughs> oh yeah, I bet your, your heart was in your throat when you wrote these directions, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm a little afraid two hours might not be enough with all that meat I stuck in there. Oh, I think it's definitely enough. I, I, I think there's nothing, uh, <laughs> yeah. Full confession, I put the meat on the wrong crust and had to, had to <laughs> scoop it up again and stick it on the, okay. Okay, I think it's time to try the oh pasta boy. we made right. earlier. Okay, here we go. It's time to try. I've got to say, I'm looking at this thing. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. First of all, it lo it's it looks like a big round pot pie, really. Yeah. I mean it's it, it wasn't formed, it doesn't have sides. It's not elegant. I would not serve this at my banquet. I've No. Um it is not it's not remotely elegant. But again, no. Uh, you you have a variety of techniques. I mean, some of these pasties would have been artistic creations, but probably largely inedible. Um, and then some of them are not artistic creations, but perfectly delicious. And this might be neither, so who knows? <laughs> yeah. Okay, the crust is beautiful. Good. It's very flaky. John, I commend you on the crust, although it will taste like nothing since there's no salt in it. <laughs> <laughs> I've drained it on paper towels. Oh, wow, okay. it's even holding its bottom crust, which amazes me since so much fat drained out of it. I have managed to get out a perfect slice. This is beautiful. It looks like a pie slice. Great. And the meat, well, the meat is quite well done. The bottom, crispy. It smells great. You know, while it was cooking, it smelled fantastic. Yeah, I think all that ginger is it really, um, I mean, it's significant. But yeah, I, I love the smell of it. I'm trying the top crust. I, I love it. I love it, and ham-fistedly I'm setting up my last question, which is, if music be the food of love, then what is food? What is the food <laughs> that is my music in this cookbook? Is that what you're yes, asking? Yes, yeah, yes, I, I suppose, yes. Um, interestingly, my favorite thing in the book is something that gains no mention in Shakespeare at all, but is a recipe that was written uh, by a, a woman who was a contemporary of Shakespeare's. Uh, her name was uh, Eleanor Thetaplis, and she wrote this book about kind of uh, managing a, a large household. And in the book, she has a recipe for a pistachio cheesecake, which to me was a revelation. Um, one that that, that sounds delicious. That, that cheesecake was a thing. I had no idea. Two, that pistachio kind of blended in with cheesecake was also a thing. To me, that seems so contemporary. But in, in fact, it is this wonderful 
uh, invitation of 400-year-old flavors because you have the pistachio and the cheese and the cream and the eggs, but then also the flavor of, of uh, a little bit of ginger and some mace and some nutmeg. And then those things combine to just create this incredible kind of perfume that's much sharper than a New York style cheesecake and much more refined, which to me was a huge surprise. Because again, if you're thinking about something like this pork pasty, you're not thinking about refined cuisine. And it lets you know just how refined uh, the Elizabethans could be when they were making this food. So for me, that recipe and and those others that, that highlight kind of the delicacy and the lightness of the era, those ones are are my music. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for all of the fascinating tidbits you just uh, fed us and this huge meat concoction. I know. <laughs> I now have to get off my hands. Oh, man. That's how I'm going to put it on the menu. Huge meat concoction. <laughs> no, it was wonderful. It really was a delight. And well, thank you so much for coming talking on the podcast my pleasure and i'm so uh glad that you um invited me to do this and it was an absolute pleasure talking with you john tufts has performed more than 20 plays as a member of the oregon shakespeare festival he's also performed off broadway with primary stages ensemble studio theater and the mint theater company and regionally with the guthrie theater chicago shakespeare theater seattle rep arena stage and the Actors Theatre of Louisville. His cookbook, Fat Rascals, Dining at Shakespeare's Table, is available at his website, john-tufts.com. That's john-tufts, T-U-F-T-S, dot com. John was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Make Two Pasties, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help on this episode from the spouses of our principals, professor and actor Christine Albright Tufts in New York, and software engineer Chris Spurgeon in Los Angeles. As always, please rate and review Shakespeare Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection. The Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I am Folger Director Michael Whitmore. Mm-hmm.